Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Brother Jason, welcome to the Duocast. Thanks for inviting me back, Brian. I really appreciate it every time. Every time it's a pleasure. Hey, I wanted to uh, go grab something real quick, okay? Just a sec. Wait here. Sure. This is something that's off script. You don't know about it. I didn't give you a heads up. Okay. But I was thinking about how to incorporate new instruments into my musical vibe this summer. And I thought about this drum that I bought in Vancouver a couple of years ago. I went up for a convention. Okay. And I ended up in this music store off the beaten path somewhere in Vancouver. And I met a guy who sold drums. And I found this really cool Senegalese drum. So it's from the the country of Senegal in Africa. Okay. And it's got a goat skin head. Nice. And it's uh it's beautifully decorated, but I wanted to just play it a little bit and see if we can get it to shine through on the audio here. Okay. So I have no rhythm, but I need to get back into the groove of things, but <laughs> You know, I used to play drums around the fireside mm. in kind of drum circle like events with my friends in high school and college. Yeah. And that's and nostalgically, that's why I bought this drum. And I also really liked the guy who sold it to me. He was an interesting guy, had a story behind him and a story behind the drum. But mm-hmm. I was thinking when we get together and play, where you're going to play bass, I'm going to play guitar and sing. We talked about that before. I'd like to incorporate this drum somehow. Okay. I'm not sure, you know, what songs, we'll have to think about what songs we can use to incorporate this drum or maybe some other percussion instruments. But for some reason, I'm inspired to play. Well, yeah, anything, anything is good. I mean, I was inspired to, uh, to buy a didgeridoo a couple of years ago and I never got around to learning it, but it's always interesting when you can find like a new instrument to tackle and it's fun, you know? It is. It mixes things up a little bit. It keeps you on your toes. It humbles you, of course, mm-hmm. when you're trying to learn a new instrument and it's like you feel like a kid again. Oh, yeah. Trying to learn something that's hurting your brain. I don't know. I just feel like I need to learn the drums. I've always wanted a drum set. Yeah, me too. I've never had the space for it. Never had the space and never been in the right place in my life where I could just like go learn how to play drums. But here I have my first starter instrument, the Senegalese goat-skinned drum. Anyway, just wanted to throw that into the mix, my friend. Sounds very tribal. I like it. Right on. So we are here to recap a couple of episodes, Moby and Monica Nevy. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to open it up about Moby. This is a very special episode for me, as you know, but what did you think about our chat? Um, I, I really liked it. The thing I like about Moby and the the interview that you did with him is just how chill Moby is. Yeah. And how just freaking intelligent he is. You know, he's he's just kind of he's not what you would expect as someone who makes dance music in my opinion. I liked when he talked about 
especially liked when he talked about his spirit animal <laughs> and the beetle. <laughs> yeah. And how he and his friends were all coming up with their spirit animals and everyone was picking like these wild exotic animals like eagle or a bear. And he picked this little black beetle and, uh, you know, because he, as he described it, just stumbles through life and anything that kind of gets in the way, you either crawl over it or go around it. And it just kind of makes sense in a, in a Moby kind of way that, uh, really reveals his character. But I also appreciate Moby as an artist that continues to reinvent himself and keeps himself relevant, both as an artist and as an animal rights activist. You know, I love, I love it when folks have really strong opinions about things. Mm -hmm. And right. Moby comes into this interview with a very strong opinion, obviously, about animal rights. And he's a vegan, but he's also a 12-step guy. Mm-hmm. But he's not an evangelical 12-step guy. He just, that's the program that he's on so that he can stay clean and sober. Right. And that's part of who he is. It's part of his history and his identity. And if you look at his social media, you see just a lot of really heartwarming posts about animals and his love for animals and his, how, why he's so perplexed mm -hmm. about how we can be so cruel to animals. Right. And I may not follow his lead and I may live a little different lifestyle in terms of, you know, I, I drink alcohol, I eat meat on occasion, although I'm really trying to cut down and become vegetarian and maybe even one of these days become vegan. Yeah. My doctor would probably appreciate it if I did that. <laughs> but, you know, from an environmental standpoint, I think it makes total sense to get away from meat and the meat industry and the dairy industry Yeah, to just have less of an impact on our environment. But going back to your point, Moby really is a unique guy because he has these really strong points of view, but he's not dogmatic about it. And his story is filled with ups and downs and failures and successes and extreme low points. Yeah. That make, you know, just makes his life instructive. Like you can look at his biography and you can be like, wow, I can learn something paying attention to not just his music or, you know, the collaborations that he's worked on, but just his life in general. Yeah. He's a, he's kind of a wise guy. And I think that his philosophy too came through in that interview. It's almost like a Buddhist or Zen philosophy that he has. And that beetle spirit animal that he chose is very zen and that's why we incorporated into the title of the episode stumbling forward right you know the the full title of the episode is moby on reprise collaboration stumbling forward and the existential meditation of moby doc mm -hmm. and i'm glad you pointed that out about the the beetle how he he stumbles forward and just organically moves forward in life that way without a lot of intention, without a lot of planning, without a lot of ambition, at least right now, mm -hmm. not a lot of ambition kind of polluting the plans, so to speak. Right. So you've actually summarized it very succinctly and I rambled. So sorry about that. But oh no, no. You know, you, you and I both look at the attributes of this man, Moby, in the episode the same way. Well I just you know, he's just very it's just seemed very nonchalant about whether, you know, the Moby Doc is successful or it isn't successful. I like how he just kind of basically said, you know, the worst case scenario is nobody pays attention to it and uh, there's no audience and that's uh, not so bad. Yeah. <laughs> he said it basically just like that. Like, yeah, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, well, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's fun to talk to people that 
don't put too much importance on their work. And like, in other words, they don't take themselves so seriously mm-hmm. that they're going to get caught up in, you know, the stats of their downloads and their streaming downloads and their album sales and, you know, how many people have rented Moby Doc and who's paying attention. I don't think he really cares. No, I don't. No. There's part of him that cares because, you know, this is a marketplace and this is an economy and everybody has to make a living. But I, I love his attitude and how nonchalant he is about it. Right. Yeah. Same here. I, I think he's a, I think he'd be fun to hang out with. Not, he wouldn't want to party or anything, but that's, that's okay. Just have a conversation Yeah. with somebody like Moby where you can just chill and you can tell stories. And I think it's great. Yeah. You remember Justin Connor? I do. I do. Yeah. I was emailing him. He emailed me about the Moby episode and um, said, good job, you know, and he was going to listen to it and watch the Moby doc. And I said, Justin, your life, there's a lot of parallels here Mm -hmm. between you and Moby. Mm -hmm. So you should watch the Moby doc because there are a lot of parallels. I mean, in terms of their philosophy and kind of the the ups and downs that they went through their musical journeys. Right. So um, it was kind of fun to reconnect with Justin on that. Oh yeah, totally. I bet. How's he doing? He's doing well, man. He's still promoting his film based a lot on his life. And he's um, about to publish his book. Maybe we'll be able to talk to Justin again once that book gets published. That would be awesome. Yeah. In addition to the Moby episode, we have to recap the Monica Nevy bonus episode, which launched this week. And uh, instead of asking you what you think of the interview, I think I'm going to start the conversation just by saying Monica Nevy is, I think, the first full-fledged stand-up comic, full-time stand-up comic that I've interviewed. And she, for me, was one of the more fun conversations I've had in terms of just understanding something that sounds completely terrifying to me. (laughs) The, The concept of getting up on a stage and trying to make complete strangers laugh is so foreign to me. And I know there's there's a little bit of a parallel between what I do and stand-up comedy because I try cases. I get up in front of a jury and I tell stories. And that's what comics do. They tell stories. Mm-hmm. But the pressure that I experience as a storyteller is a lot different. I'm not minimizing that pressure. It's important because people's lives are on the line. Their livelihoods are on the line in the cases that I represent them on. Mm-hmm. But what I see with a stand-up comic is that you're looking for that direct feedback from the audience right away. You need it. Like, I just told a joke, you know instantly whether you succeed or fail. That's right, yeah. In a jury trial, I'm talking to, you know, 14 stone faces, two of whom are alternate jurors. So it's a 12-person jury, two alternates. And all of them are looking at me in a way that I have no way to tell whether what I'm saying is connecting with them, whether it's resonating. Right. And so it's like a delayed gratification until the end of the case. Did I win? Did I lose? Is it splitting the baby? Mm-hmm. what's happening with the outcome of this case. But the instant feedback that you get as a comic has to be like super, super exhilarating or super deflating. Right, right. And that that is terrifying to me. And so that's why I've never really gone that, well, first of all, I don't think I'm funny, but <laughs> second of all, even if I was funny, I'm not sure I would ever have the courage to get up on stage like Monica does. So I really respect her in that way. And I'm so glad that she shared her story with us. So I'll turn it over to you. Well, I just, you know, I, I've been told throughout my life that I'm kind of funny. You know, I can, I can be funny. I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm really, you're hilarious, dude. Well, you know, I, I do the dad jokes, you know, 
<laughs> that's what I do. I don't have a routine or anything. And I know I couldn't stand up in front of people. I just get too nervous, man. Cause you're just, you're up there. You're basically naked. It's you and a microphone and you better be good at what you're doing. Right. Uh, I can't, and I wouldn't be able to handle hecklers. I just don't know. I just, I'd be, I'd be the angry comic <laughs> if I was heckled. So I don't know if I could succeed at that, but, but Monica is just, she's just a really good comic. She's naturally funny. Um, you know, when you did the interview, I had to go on YouTube and watch her act. She has tons of videos on her YouTube channel. If anyone wants to go check it out and you know, you won't be disappointed. It's pretty funny stuff. It really is. She's, she knows how to do social media and I don't, I don't know the trick. I don't, I don't know what, how long my post should be. I don't know how personal to get, but Monica really has it nailed down because she puts up these short clips that are very accessible. Like right away, you just know, okay, this is going to be like a 30 second to one minute joke, or, you know, she's up on stage doing her stand up, or she's maybe doing a little bit inside of her house. Mm -hmm. That's hilarious. And so what you get from her channel, her social media channel, and my folks, my marketing folks tell me this all the time, you have to provide value of some kind. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the value? With Monica, what you're getting is hilarity. You, it's always going to be funny. Oh, yeah. Some degree of funny, you know, laugh out loud funny or just chuckle, but whatever it is, it's providing value. Mm -hmm. And um, so kudos to Monica for being able to go from being a college student at Seattle University and a basketball player to a stand-up comic, like almost no transition. She just like, you know what I'm going to try? I'm going to go do stand-up. Yeah. And so she writes up this routine and gets up on stage and invites some friends and then boom, she's a stand-up comic and she's still doing it. She's touring, she's making money. It's her full-time gig now. So good for her. And want to thank Monica for talking to us. Yeah. And you got to see her in Yakima, correct? I did. Yeah. It was a good show. Tough crowd, but you know, she did really well and really well with, with the Yakima crowd. And the reason I say it's a tough crowd is Yakima is a weird demographic. As you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of conservatives here. There's a lot of conservative Christians. Yep. I think the folks that go to seasons to see stand-up comedy are probably going to be a little more progressive and open-minded and also a little bit drunk, which helps. <laughs> but she did really well, especially for an opening act. I mean, opening acts are considered, and you probably see this in music too, mm -hmm. they're not given a lot of respect. No. You know, the sound isn't quite dialed in. Yeah. They don't get the opening, you know, music. Like when a, a comic comes out that's an opener, they don't have this, and welcome Monica Nevy, and then they play her theme song coming in. You don't see that with an opening act. And they do that intentionally. They want the main act to have the big buildup and the theme song. And so mm -hmm. you see that difference between the opening act. You feel that difference between the opening act and the main act. Like, oh, this is what we're here to see. And this is what we've paid for. And the main act was Brad Upton. Um, and he has a pretty big following. But his following is way different than Monica's. It's different age demographic. And, you know, he's like a, he's a clean comic. And he's older. I think he's in his 60s. So he's got an older following, which makes it tough for Monica, yet she still did really well with that crowd. And she's really good at crowd work, which I found fascinating because crowd work is where you're just kind of riffing based upon who you see in the audience and what they're telling you or what they're saying, or maybe there's a heckler or something like that. And so she's able to on the fly deal with any situation that's thrown at her and make it funny and fun and not confrontational. Right. Well, the one thing I liked about the interview with you is she described someone as the puppet lady. 
Oh gosh. <laughs> yeah. That that was an uncomfortable situation. I I don't get it. Why did uh, she was heckling with the puppet? Well, um disrupting. <laughs> so, uh. I mean, you bring a you bring a puppet to a show like that and you respond to questions from the comic by, you know, talking with the puppet as if the puppet is the person being asked the question by the comic. That's that's pretty close to being a heckler. Yeah, I'm I'm sure there was a lot of alcohol involved. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> I'd like to see that, actually. It might still be available to stream. I'll have to try to check it out, man. So this week, Jason, there was a pretty special event, the 50th anniversary of Joni Mitchell's Blue Album. Ooh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you probably saw my post on social media about it where I was talking about how important that album is for me mm -hmm. and kind of the history that I have with that album, how my wife, Trisha, your cousin, mm -hmm. uh, of course, introduced me to Joni Mitchell, even though my dad was Joni Mitchell's tour pilot. I was too young to really appreciate her music at the time. Yeah. And so when Trisha, when I first met her, played the Blue Album for me, basically was on repeat for an entire summer. Wow. I was like, what is this? Mm -hmm. what, is, what is this magic music I've never heard before? Why haven't I heard it before today? I was into older music. I was listening to 70s and 80s, well, 60s, 70s and 80s music throughout the entirety of the 80s and 90s. Yeah. But for some reason, I, I missed Joni until Trish turned me on to it. And ever since then, Joni Mitchell's Blue has been in my rotation. It's been probably in my top five all-time favorite albums. And I just wanted to give a shout out to Joni. She's still around. She's uh, on social media. At least her people are posting for her on social media. And it's just one of those albums that holds a very special place in my heart and in my musical consciousness. And I wanted to just acknowledge that. Yeah, I saw a post from her yesterday, actually. Um talking about the Blue Album when it came out was kind of controversial. And she said she's glad that people are paying attention to it 50 years later, you know, and so she appreciates it. You know, um, for me, it's one of my favorite albums of all time um, and probably my favorite Joni Mitchell album. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, in terms of like the year that it came out, it's right up there with Carol King's Tapestry and uh, like James Taylor's Mud Slide Slim and the Blue Horizon. I don't know if you've heard those albums, but those are two other great albums from 1971, and hers holds up mm -hmm. just as well or better. She's just one of the most, gosh, I guess, prolific songwriters of our time. I think she's recorded over 20 albums or something like that. Mm -hmm. And with that voice, such an amazing voice to go along with that. Um, it's just, she's just truly unique. Yeah. Tapestry is great, by the way. I, I do love Tapestry. Oh, Carol King. Yeah. Tapestry. Absolutely. All the way through. You can listen to it all the way through and not say, well, that song wasn't very good. All of them are good. Same thing with Joni Mitchell's Blue. Mm -hmm. Every song. Yeah. I think my favorite song on there is the first track. All I Want is what it's called. And it's just her and a dulcimer, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's so cool. But, you know, there's an interesting track on that album and it's called This Flight Tonight. And that song actually was covered by the rock band Nazareth four years later. Oh my gosh. Came out as a flip side to Love Hurts. So I didn't know that until later. I love this trivia, Jason. And every time we talk about albums uh -huh. and the, the deep dive that you do and that deep understanding that you have of the history of this music, it's fascinating. So thanks for sharing that with me. Well, it's something I learned after the fact. I mean, I, I heard the Nazareth version first. 
And so I was like, oh, this is kind of an interesting song. But then discovered Joni Mitchell's Blue, you know, later on and Mm -hmm. was like, wait a minute, that's a Nazareth song that was put out in 1975. No, it turns out she wrote it. So (laughs) it's like, wow. And she just, yeah, just astounding. And to hear also, I mean, if you look at our catalog of interviews, how we interviewed, you know, AJ Eaton, who directed the Crosby documentary, but the relationship between David Crosby and Joni Mitchell and how complicated and problematic that was and the history that Joni has in the 60s and 70s in California and Southern California and the connection to James Taylor and all of these iconic musicians that played with each other. Stephen Stills played on Blue. Right. James Taylor played on Blue. I just don't get the sense that today we have the same thing happening in the music community. Oh, no. And maybe it's because I'm, maybe it's because I'm not paying attention, but it seems like back then in the 70s, there was something really special happening in terms of relationships and collaborations that we do not see happening today. No, we don't. Yeah, it's true. Well, it's just, it's, you know, it was a special time, really, musically, just coming out of the 1960s, all of that culture and, you know, hanging out. I mean, can you imagine hanging out with <laughs> all these people? You know, a lot of them lived in Laurel Canyon together and just, right. I mean, it was just talent everywhere you looked. You had, you know, on one one part of it, you had Joni Mitchell hanging out with Crosby, Stills, and Nash and those guys. Um, Judy Collins was up there. And then, you know, Frank Zappa moves into the neighborhood and everybody moves out. not quite like that but similar i was i heard they used to complain a lot about frank zappa oh i'm sure because he played 24 7 you know well can you imagine the parties in laurel canyon and just the the confluence of geniuses all hobnobbing together and playing together and inspiring each other just incredible that's what i'm talking about when i say i don't know that that's happening now but maybe it's just because I'm not in the music industry and I really don't see all of the collaborations that are happening. I, I don't think it's happening like that anymore. There's not that bonding really going on anymore. There might be, but we're not seeing it. We don't hear about it. Yeah. You mentioned your favorite track, All I Want. And I, I was thinking, well, what are my favorite tracks from Blue? It's got to be California, mm. River, and Case of You. Yeah. In California, the reason I love that song is it's it's kind of an ode to, it's a love song for California. Yeah. And I love California. And I've always, ever since, um, really spending a lot of time in Los Angeles when I started the podcast and the work that I do down there and the clients that I represent in California, I ended up spending a lot of time in Southern California. My mm-hmm. good friend Max lives in Marina del Rey. And I remember one of the trips down to Marina del Rey where I was, I was uh, surfing with Max on the beach. And there was just a moment where I realized this is a really special place for me. Like I feel a connection to Southern California and not just Southern California, but West LA, Santa Monica, Venice Beach area, Marina Del Rey. And I, I just want to spend more time here. And I think that's where I'm drawn. And I think everybody has a place that they're drawn to, whether it's the desert, whether it's the water, whether it's the mountains, Yeah, that everyone has that special place. And why that is, why they're connected to that place, who knows? But for me, water is very important. And I don't know why. I just need to be near the water. I need to be in the water. And so when I listen to California now, that's what I think about. As I think about West LA, I think about surfing with my friend Max. I think about walking down the boardwalk with my daughters. 
the Venice uh, boardwalk and from Muscle Beach down to Venice and back and how all the weirdos and <laughs> all the, the craziness in that area. Yeah. And then the, the lovely, you know, restaurant scene and the food scene, the music scene. It's such a great town. So California, that's what I think about when I listen to that song. And then River, for me, is a great cover song. So there's other people that have played River. Of course, they don't nail it like Joni does. But mm. one of the best covers of River that I have ever heard is when Robert Downey Jr. sang it on a show called Ally McBeal. Oh. It was a show from the 90s. Oh, yeah. And this was when Robert Downey Jr. was still using. He had a really bad drug problem. Then he actually, I think, got kicked off of the show, Ally McBeal. Yeah, I think so. But there was a scene where he is playing piano and he's singing River mm. by Joni Mitchell. I don't remember that. And it's, uh, uh, you got to look it up on YouTube. It's so, he's really talented. I mean, Robert Downey Jr. has so much charisma. He's a great actor. He's super funny. Mm -hmm. But he's also a really talented singer and piano player. Didn't know that. I think it was him playing the piano, but maybe it was just him singing. Okay. But I always think about that scene from Ally McBeal. And, and then, of course, Case of You. It's like, you just can't go wrong. You oh, can't no. go wrong with Case of You. And another love song, another infatuation song. And, you know, it just kind of makes you think about relationships and newness and the, the, uh, the way that you feel when you first meet somebody. So right, it's a pretty pretty cool album and and a great discussion. I'm glad we brought this up. Yeah, Joni Mitchell's just very unique. Saw an interview with David Crosby. Uh, Howard Stern was interviewing him over Zoom, and they were talking about when they dated and how they broke up. Mm -hmm. And how they broke up was Joni wrote a song to David and played it in front of everybody twice. Right, and it was like a very blatant like goodbye song to David while everyone's sitting around listening to it. Every, everybody's kind of cringing. Right. Yeah. But, <laughs> and she got done with it and sung it again. So. Yeah. He talks about that on the Crosby doc too. <laughs> and it, I, I remember hearing that story on the documentary. I'm like, oh, but he so deserved it. Oh, sure. He so deserved it. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah he's He was just, he was a pretty big asshole back then. And I think. I don't think that's changed much. <laughs> by most, by most accounts, he's a, uh, yeah, he's an asshole now too, but he's. <laughs> He's kind of one of those lovable assholes that like if he's grandfathered into your inner circle, if you have a history with him, you're going to forgive his trespasses and you're going to continue to be friends, even though he's a little prickly. <laughs> he is. He is. Yeah. <laughs> he, well, I think it's funny about David Crosby too, is that he didn't like Jim Morrison. Oh, I know. I love how that's, that's an irreverence that I respect about David is that he doesn't just follow. He's not a lemming when it comes to, oh, we've got to bow down to Jim Morrison mm -hmm. because he's such a legend. He's like, fuck that guy. I hated that dude, <laughs> you know, because he sucked. I, don't, I didn't hate him personally, but I just thought he was a shitty singer. <laughs> so, right. Right. You know, I don't agree with that. I really like Jim Morrison, but I also respect. Oh, I do too. I respect when people have, just like with Moby, you know, if you have strong opinions. Yes. That is it, it's a testament to your character that you're willing to take a stance on something that you believe in. I think that's absolutely great. Yeah. So, Jason, what do we have coming up next? Uh, we have an interview coming up with David Megadoff. Yeah, that one is in the can, and I'm looking forward to hearing how the edits come out because David recorded that on, I think he recorded it on QuickTime on his computer locally from a closet on the set of the Dexter show. Oh, yeah, that's right. So 
it was really cool. He made time for me while he was shooting Dexter and uh, I, I could see like shirts and things hanging from this closet. And uh, he was sitting there with his microphone that was plugged into his laptop. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is a nice mic. I don't see that happening very often with guests. Like they're actually using a microphone and headphones. Right on. And I was like, this is going to sound good. And then at the end of the interview, he sent me the file, the QuickTime file. I'm like, this is golden. So I think the episode's going to sound great. At least I hope so. And for those who don't know who David Magadoff is, he is a podcaster. He is an actor. He is on the ninth season of Dexter. He plays a rookie cop and he's been in a ton of shows and we'll talk more about him. You'll, you'll find out more about him when the episode is launched and I'll do an intro, which explains more about his career, but he's a comedian too. And he's just hilarious. Yeah. So, and you, you hear a little bit of that humor coming through during the interview and he cracked me up throughout. So it was a lot of fun to talk to David about his podcast, about his career and about Dexter. And I think it's one of the better episodes of 2021. Yeah. Um, I haven't had a chance to fully listen to it yet. Um, I did notice there's some audio issues a little bit, um, like level adjustments and stuff like that, that I'm going to have to fix. But other than that, it's, it's, it's a good interview. Yeah. And the, the last thing I wanted to mention, Jason, is that next week I have an interview with Tommy Chong. We've talked about mm. Tommy coming up, but we actually have a date and a time. I'm actually going to interview Tommy tomorrow on the podcast. Yes. So if anyone who listens to this duo cast between now and the time that I hit record with Tommy Chong, send me a message. If you have any questions you'd like me to ask him, and I will give you credit for the question if it's asked on the show. I might have a couple of questions. Send them to me. All right, I will. Are they pot related? Uh, no, not really. You want some free samples? <laughs> no, no, I'm good. Um, no, it's more about the history of Cheech and Chong. I think you'll get into that. So I, I may not have very many questions, if if any. But I already kind of know some of the history of Cheech and Chong. I just, I'm just curious about the basic stuff where they met and all that stuff. Yeah, well, I'll try to cover as much of the biography as I can. But yeah, I'm looking forward to talking to Tommy. I've been following him on social media for a couple of months now, and he's he's a hilarious dude. Oh, yeah. But I really don't know a lot about his career and what he's done since Cheech and Chong. So that'll be a fun chat. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that, man. Right on, brother. Well, it's, as always, really fun to talk to you and reconnect. Okay. All right, brother. Well, I'm going to end the show okay. with a little drum circle. I love you, brother. Love you too, man. Have a good weekend. All right, you too. Hey, thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.